Good afternoon and welcome again to sermons provided for Covenant Hope Church during the pandemic of 2020. I hope you've been following along and enjoying hearing from the Psalms, King David's, largely King David's poetry in the Old Testament. And we've stopped last week with Psalm 101 and we're beginning now into a new series in the New Testament. You might notice that as a church, we tend to rotate back and forth between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and also between different genres of Scripture, different types, poetry to narrative to law to epistles and letters. Uh, we go back and forth because we want to expose the church to the whole counsel of God, the entire Bible. And so, as of today, we're beginning a series in the book of Acts. When King David was old and nearing death, he had to prepare those who he was leaving behind to carry out his wishes, to carry out ruling on the throne as he intended. His son Adonijah was gathering allies and setting himself up to be king, but David had promised that King Solomon would be the one to sit on the throne after him. And so King David, notified of what Adonijah was doing, summoned a few who were faithful to him, and he gave them detailed and specific instructions for what they were to do. Solomon was to be publicly anointed as the new king immediately. He was to ride into Jerusalem on the king's donkey. The priests were to affirm him. The trumpets were to be blown, and a crowd was to be gathered that would shout, Long live King Solomon! Now, last of all, he called Solomon to himself, and he gave Solomon specific instructions. He said, be gracious to some, put others out of power, and most of all, walk in the ways of the Lord. People in authority are wise to give specific and careful and detailed instructions to those that they're leaving behind when they depart. That was true of King David, and it was true of King Jesus as well. But David was only the human king of an earthly kingdom, Israel. Jesus was and is the God-man who sits on the throne by the right hand of the Father, exercising all authority in heaven and in earth. How much more important were his final instructions to his apostles before he left the earth? That's what we're exploring in the book of Acts. That's what we're examining. Luke's account of Jesus' final moments with his apostles before he was taken up into heaven. Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. That's where we're starting. Acts chapter 1. It comes right after the Gospel of John in the New Testament. Acts chapter 1, and we're going from verses 1 through 11. Follow along with me. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, 
You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's pray to the Lord. Heavenly Father, your word is truth. May the words of my mouth as I explain your word and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, the big idea from this passage is the Spirit will empower us to be worldwide witnesses for the ascended Christ. The Spirit will empower us to be worldwide witnesses for the ascended Christ. Now, when we turn to dive into the book of Acts, we're beginning in what is actually volume two, written by the gospel writer named Luke. Luke was a trained doctor, and his attention to detail served him well in his secondary vocation, which was to be a historian, a historian of the life and teaching of Jesus and the acts of the apostles and the growth of the church. And that's how we know him as a historian. At the beginning of his gospel account, Luke writes this. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. The person that he wrote his gospel to is someone that Luke calls Theophilus. It's a common name. Other people would have had that name in society at the time, and it means lover of God. No one knows exactly who Theophilus was, but many commentators think that this man might have been a wealthy person who was perhaps a young convert and needed encouragement and confidence in his faith. Perhaps he was a seeker, but that he was perhaps funding and publishing Luke's accounts because in that day and time, publishing books would have cost a lot of money. Now, at the beginning of volume two of Luke's account here in the book of Acts, he addresses Theophilus again, and he recaps all of his gospel account from the gospel of Luke in three long sentences in that first paragraph. But where his gospel account mostly covered Jesus's life leading up to his death and resurrection, these first three sentences 
focus our attention on what Jesus did and said between his resurrection and when he ascended into heaven. Or as Luke says in verse 2, until the day when he was taken up. It's a brief, to the point, summary of the last chapter of Luke with an emphasis on Jesus' command to wait for the empowering spirit. We see that in verses 1 through 5. It's the first point this afternoon. Wait for the empowering spirit. One of the first things that Luke makes clear to us about those 40 days, as he tells us, between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension, is that Jesus wanted to make sure that many of his followers would see him multiple times doing all kinds of different activities. He met them in the garden near his empty tomb. He walked with them from one village to another. He met them on a mountain in Galilee. He ate food with them when he had appeared to them miraculously in the room where they were meeting. He directed a miracle catch of fish on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. He cooked breakfast for them and served them. He even showed them his crucifixion wounds in his hands and his side. Paul tells the Corinthian church in chapter 15 of his first letter to that church that the resurrected Jesus appeared to 500 followers at one time even. And Jesus even gave Old Testament teaching lessons to his disciples. He was showing them how the Old Testament was really all about himself. The prophecies, the stories, the poetry, the laws, all of it was about himself, he taught them. You know, it's hard for me to imagine what it would have been like just to hear Jesus teach during his lifetime, much less, much more to watch and listen to the resurrected Jesus teach. Can you imagine that? If you and I had been there, we would be listening to someone teach us whom we had seen hang on the cross and breathe his last breath. We would have been listening to someone that had been put in a tomb. And now he's alive and he's teaching us? Oh, all of those encounters are the many proofs mentioned in verse 3 by Luke here over a period of longer than a month. Jesus wanted them to be sure that they hadn't just imagined his resurrection. He wanted them to be confident that he was really alive. If you're not a Christian, this information might be new to you. The news that Jesus presented himself many times over the course of 40 days to his disciples is proof that the Christian faith is rooted in historical events. Christianity isn't primarily a philosophy based on ideas or a religion that's founded on myths. The Christian faith is rooted in real history, actual events, verified people, places that you and I could visit even today. Now, don't be misled by the fact that Christians talk about having faith and they call people to faith. We certainly do that. We have faith, though, based on facts, not blind faith. Faith based on the proofs that Jesus has provided and the accounts that the apostles have given to us. 
Before you dismiss the Christian faith, I encourage you to do your homework. Read the gospel accounts. Ask the hard questions. Investigate. You know, sadly, most people don't reject faith in Christ because they've thought it through and they've found it to be false. Most reject it because Jesus says things like, take up your cross and follow me. They reject it because Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God as he was speaking about at the end of verse 3 here. The kingdom of God, of course, is about a king who claims rightful authority over your life and my life. That's why most people reject Christianity. My question to you is, if you investigate the proofs, will you trust in Christ? Verses 1 through 3 are a broad recap of the end of Luke's gospel, but in verses 4 and 5, Luke zeroes in on a very important command that he gave the apostles before he was taken up to heaven. The apostles were to go to Jerusalem and wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, before Jesus began his public ministry, John the Baptist had gone before him. John called people to repent of their sins, and he was baptizing people in the Jordan River as a sign of their repentance and a symbol of being cleansed from their sins when they repented. But John promised that he was not the Messiah sent from God. People were wondering about that. Instead, he claimed that he was baptizing with water, but someone more powerful than him would come after him and that they would baptize with the Holy Spirit. During this time after his resurrection, Jesus reminded his apostles about this prophetic promise of John, and he ordered them, as it says in verse 4. Look with me there at verse 4 not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Jesus had promised the coming of the Holy Spirit himself, and he had been accompanied by the Spirit from the time of his baptism, throughout his ministry, and even now as he gives them commands, as it says in verse 2, that he gave them commands through the Spirit. But they, the apostles, had not been baptized in the Spirit yet. They hadn't been immersed. They hadn't been filled. That was yet to come, but it was a promise. It was a promise of the Father, the Father in heaven. Now, the special outpouring of the Spirit of God was something that the disciples would have been familiar with as an idea. They knew from the Old Testament that there was a prophesied time in the future when God would renew and restore His people Israel, and that that time would be accompanied and accomplished by His Holy Spirit. And so, Isaiah 44.3 says, "...for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground." I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. In the next chapter, chapter 2 of Acts, we'll hear Peter quote from the Old Testament book of Joel 2, verse 28. It says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. The apostles had experienced so much, of course, in their ministry and their life of following Jesus. They'd performed miracles, they'd cast out demons. But when his suffering began, 
they abandoned him. They failed. They didn't stay with him. And now Jesus was about to leave them. They were weak. They were scared. They were struggling with doubt and unsure of how they'd be guided once Jesus departed. That's the picture that we get of the apostles after Jesus' resurrection. But the Father's plan was not just to cause the Spirit to accompany them from time to time, but to radically fill them. Only a complete filling of the Holy Spirit could strengthen them, could assure them and lead them once Jesus had ascended to heaven. Oh, we're just like them, aren't we, church? Apart from the Spirit indwelling us, on our best days, we're weak. Very few of us have never struggled with doubts from time to time. And so oftentimes we don't know what to do next. How does the Lord want to lead us? We ask ourselves even daily. But the Spirit is the promise from the Father. What a comfort to know that God has promised the Spirit to us, His very presence inside His followers. Even more, the disciples needed permanent, ongoing transformation to carry out what Jesus had in store for them. They needed to be changed. Jesus knows that they don't need better training. They don't need a clever strategy or a more culturally relevant program. No, to become the church of Jesus Christ, they need the indwelling of the Spirit. That's the only thing that they needed. And that's the only thing that we need to truly be the church. The apostles needed the Holy Spirit in order to carry out Jesus' mission after he would ascend into heaven. And so when they asked him what would happen next, he made it clear for what purpose they were going to be given the Spirit. That purpose was to be witnesses to the whole world, witness to the whole world. That's the second point this afternoon. And we see it spelled out in verses six through eight. We know from verse 12 that beginning in verse six, the apostles had gathered there. It says when they had come together, that must have been there on the Mount of Olives that's mentioned in verse 12. That was a mountain right there beside the city of Jerusalem. It overlooked the city. And it was there that they asked Jesus this question that was on all of their minds. Look with me at verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, it's not a particularly bad question. They knew that when the Messiah came, he would usher in a restoration of God's people, Israel. They weren't wrong about that. They wanted to know if it was going to happen right then. Instead, Jesus wanted to focus their attention on what their role would be in his restoration work in the world and how they'd be equipped to do it. Now, verses seven and eight are crucial verses in the book of Acts. Look there with me at those verses as well. It's worth repeating them. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. 
First, Jesus tells them to know the times of the seasons that God has fixed or determined by his authority is actually none of their business. It's not for them to know. God is in control of history. The world might look like it's out of control, but it's very much in control by the Lord of the universe. When pandemics hit and nations are shaken, when jobs are lost and people are desperate, when you feel out of control, the God who has loved you in Jesus Christ is in control. What a great comfort. What encouragement to us in turbulent times, even like these that we're experiencing right now. It's like standing on a rock in the midst of the waves crashing all around us or like being safe in a stone fortress when enemies are attacking. Are you reminding yourself daily that your Father in heaven is in control and that He'll not let anything happen to you that's not a part of His plan? Now that doesn't spare us from suffering, of course. It didn't spare His beloved own Son from suffering. But faith in God's control of all history, our history, enables us to be confident when we doubt and fear. It enables us to be joyful even in the midst of trials and tribulations. Jesus didn't want the apostles to bother with exactly when things would happen in God's plan, and so shouldn't we either. Many so-called ministers of the gospel have founded their ministries on trying to predict when God would execute different aspects of his plans in the world. They write books, they put on TV shows, they rake in money, the money of worried people eager to try and decode the scriptures so that they can know when things are exactly going to happen. <laughs> well, brothers and sisters, don't be distracted by such men. Don't pay attention to them. Don't buy their books. Don't listen to their TV shows. These things are not for us to know. What is for us to know is our role in God's plans for the world and what he's going to give us to enable us to accomplish it. He gives us power through the Holy Spirit to be his witnesses to the whole world. That's our task. And His Spirit empowers us to do it. Even in the Old Testament, the Lord had told Israel that she would be His witnesses to the world, witnesses testifying to the other nations that the Lord was the only true God worthy of their worship and their love. Isaiah 43, 11 and 12, God says through the prophet, I, I am the Lord and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Now the apostles had experienced life with Jesus, ministry with Jesus, and now they were the ones who had spent 40 days with the resurrected Son. The beginning of the restoration of Israel was going to take place as they proclaimed Jesus as the Lord, that he had died on the cross in their place, the place of sinners, that he had taken the wrath of God on himself, and that now anyone, not just Israelites, but anyone from any nation could repent of their sins, 
they could turn to God and His Son Jesus in faith and have their sins forgiven and cleansing and the empowering presence of God through the Holy Spirit would come and dwell in them. That is the gospel. That's the good news message that these apostles were to carry. Do you believe in this message? Do you trust in this Jesus? Oh, I pray you do, friend. Today, today you could turn to Jesus in faith. The Israel that God was going to restore was not just one ethnic group from the Middle East. You know, it's likely that these apostles misunderstood what it would mean for Israel to be, un, to be restored. They probably thought that Jesus would take the throne in Jerusalem and kick the Romans out. But Jesus wasn't about to restore an earthly political kingdom. No, the Lord was on the verge of empowering gospel messengers to win the world to himself. The Israel that God would begin restoring was a people from every tribe and tongue and nation who would worship the true God in spirit and in truth. That people would eventually be called the church. We are that people, Covenant Hope. Of course, we're not the only ones, but our covenant community is a part of this grand work of God that has been carried out since Jesus ascended into heaven and sent the Spirit 2,000 years ago. We're a part of it. These apostles were the original eyewitnesses, but their testimony and witness to Jesus Christ in the gospel is what we bear witness to as well. We have it in the scriptures. And we have inherited their mission. Are you clear on what our purpose is as a church? We're here to be a beacon, a gospel beacon to Dubai and the UAE. We're here to proclaim the gospel message. We're here to make disciples. Are you clear on what your purpose is as an individual Christian? Are you praying for your individual witness of Christ? Are you praying for our corporate witness as a church to Christ here in Dubai? This is one of the primary tasks that Jesus has given to us as a church, and we must be about it. We're not just hiding out and hanging on until Jesus comes back. We're to be pressing outward and pressing into people's lives around us with the good news of Jesus. Now, if you're not a Christian, you may think to yourself, why is it that Christians try to force their religion on others? Why is it that they share their faith with other people who already have a faith? Oh friend, we do that because Jesus has commissioned us. Jesus himself has given us this mission. We're not seeking to trick anyone, but we are seeking to persuade. Why? Because we think it's the truth. We think it is the one true thing. And so we want to obey our Lord and Master Jesus. We share about his life. We share the message of the good news of the gospel. That's why we pray. That's why we need to be competent, brothers and sisters, at explaining the gospel. And if we're not, if we're not doing these things, 
It's a good sign that we've not completely given ourselves over to the control of the Holy Spirit that fills us. There are so many people in Dubai and beyond who've not heard a clear and accurate account of the good news of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, it's for them that God has put us here. And we aren't just concerned about our immediate surroundings either. Just like the original apostles, Jesus wants us to be a part of seeing the gospel go to the end of the earth. The book of Acts is a story of evangelism and missions in the power of the Spirit. And so verse 8, verse 8 is like a table of contents for the book of Acts. Luke first tells the story of the Spirit's work in Jerusalem. And we're going to see that unfold in chapters 1 through 7 of Acts. And then he says it's going to go out to Judea and Samaria. We're going to see that in chapters 8 through 12. And lastly, he says the gospel is going to go out to the end of the earth. And we see that in the book of Acts in chapters 13 through 28. And if we read there in that last chapter, 28, Paul is in prison in Rome. And what is he doing? He's proclaiming Christ. He's telling the gospel to all who will listen to him. It's going to the end of the earth. Every church is to be a missionary church, not just a few. We desire Covenant Hope to be a missionary church, and that's one of the reasons why we pray for churches around the world. Recently in our Zoom prayer meetings on Monday nights, we've heard reports from a pastor in Beirut, Lebanon, or a pastor in Sao Paulo, Brazil, And we prayed for a pastor and his church in the midst of China. In our prayer meetings and our pastoral prayers, we pray for the evangelization of people groups in faraway lands, people groups that we will likely never have personal contact with. Why? Because we want to see the gospel go to the end of the earth. Our pastoral intern program is an effort to send forth men who will plant churches in gospel-needy places. These were the last words Jesus spoke before he ascended into heaven. They became lifelong marching orders for the apostles. These were the instructions that they would go to their graves having given their lives for. Now, for anyone who turns to Christ in faith, this becomes their life goal. This becomes a top priority, a personal and corporate vision and mission statement. And brothers and sisters, this isn't just for mature Christians. No, if you're a young Christian, this is for you as well. You know, God oftentimes uses young Christians most powerfully in sharing the gospel. Oh, I encourage you, if you're a brand new Christian, don't wait to share the gospel. Do it immediately. You don't have to know the whole Bible. All you have to know is a simple gospel, the very same simple gospel that you understood when you repented and believed in Him. Brothers and sisters, we also are empowered witnesses of Jesus to those who are near, especially and through prayer and our missions activity far away. The witness of the church in the whole world is the most important thing 
that is happening in the world because it is God's agenda in the world. When you read the newspaper or you scroll through your favorite news website, I wonder, do you remember that no matter what happens in, let's say, controversial elections, no matter what natural disasters are happening here or there, no matter how economies are rising or falling, the going forth of the gospel through the power of spirit-filled Christians and gospel-centered churches is the most important thing happening. It's the most important thing happening because God is causing the kingdom of God to be filled up with repenting sinners trusting in Christ. Even today, even today, all around the world, the gospel will be going forth. Today, people will repent and trust in Christ. Praise God. Praise God. Nothing can stop it. That's the perspective we need to have as spirit-filled witnesses in missionary churches. Jesus gave the apostles and us this most important mission, and he promised the Holy Spirit's empowerment to enable us to do it. And then it was time for Jesus to depart. But was it the Son of God really exiting the stage of history? Absolutely not. The last three verses make it clear. And that brings us to our last point. We worship the ascended king. We worship the ascended king. We see that spelled out in verses 9 through 11. Immediately after Jesus told them of their mission in the world, he was lifted up and he departed into a cloud that took him out of their sight. And then two men in white robes, obviously angels, announced to the apostles that Jesus had been taken up into heaven and would come back in the same way. The ascension of Jesus into heaven is a picture of King Jesus ascending to his throne at the right hand of God the Father, the place where he will rule and reign from until he comes back. So rather than Jesus just disappearing, it's as if this is the glorified, exalted Jesus taking his rightful place in the central command room of the universe. Though he's absent from them in the body, he's very much in control on the throne. In a time of war, it's always a goal of one side to destroy the command center of their opponents. Why? If you destroy the command center, it's like cutting the head off of a body. It loses control. It's every chance that that army will be dispersed. They will lose. They don't know what to do. An army without a command center is vulnerable and likely to be routed. Jesus' ascension is like our commander taking his place in the command center of the universe to further his plan to defeat Satan, death, and sin. It means he's reigning in power over all the universe. He's executing the plan of the Father through the work of the Holy Spirit in the world. The ascension is another very important event in the story of God's salvation of his people. The incarnation, we saw. The crucifixion, the resurrection, 
And now we see the ascension. It's every bit as important as those other events. They're all important in God's plan of redemption. You might remember that the angels, angels showed up at those very important times in God's work in the world. Angels announced the birth of Jesus. Angels were there at the empty tomb of Jesus. And now angels are present at Jesus's ascension. Jesus's ascension is important enough for angels to attend because it gives us confidence. Just as Jesus now lives as a man in a human body in God's presence, so we have the promise of living as men and women with glorified bodies in God's presence. If Jesus went there, we will go there. In addition, when Jesus was on the earth, he worked with hundreds of people to teach and to lead them. And we know from the upcoming chapter that there waiting obediently in the upper room in Jerusalem, waiting for the Spirit to come is just 120 disciples of Jesus. But now, now that Jesus is on the throne and he's sent his Spirit after chapter two of Acts, Jesus will be working in the life of every believer by the power of the Spirit. At first, thousands. Then we know over the course of time and history, millions and millions of people are being led by the Holy Spirit who reveals Christ, who exalts Christ, and transforms people from one degree of glory to another into Christ-likeness. Jesus at the right hand of God the Father is also interceding for us. He's praying for us, the rest of Scripture tells us. He makes requests for us and brings our prayers before the Father. We should rejoice that Jesus has gone to be with the Father. Jesus' ascension is the next to last step in God's plan of redemption, and the only thing left is His return. We worship the king who has taken his rightful place on the throne and he's promised to take us, to come and take us to be with the Father and himself on a day that he says is coming soon. Now we know that it's been 2,000 years since Jesus ascended into heaven, but I want to remind you that to God, a thousand years is like a day. It's a short time. For these apostles, it was a fearful time, a time of uncertainty. But the angels are reminding the disciples here of exactly what Jesus promised them. He'll return in the same way. He'll come on the clouds. He'll come in a body, not simply in some kind of spiritual, ethereal way. No, he'll come bodily. Brothers and sisters, we live in the hopes of seeing the return of Jesus. We should be waiting eagerly and expectantly for it. One of the ways that we remind ourselves of His coming is, of course, by taking the Lord's Supper, and it's something that we've desperately missed during this pandemic. But we must be reminding ourselves regularly that Jesus is coming. Knowing that He's coming helps us continue to live for Him because we want to be found doing His work, living for Him when He returns. Jesus' return is one of the promises of God that we can remind one another of, to strengthen one another's walk with Him, to stiffen our resistance to sin, 
and to keep our hearts soft and supple to the Spirit's leading. Try reminding one another from time to time that Jesus is coming back. When your friend is struggling with sin, remind them that the Jesus that loves them and has saved them from the penalty of their sin is coming back. When they're having doubts, remind them that Jesus promised to return. Oh, church, let's be a people that look forward to the coming of our Lord Jesus. This passage and the rest of chapter 1 are full of anticipation. What is the Lord going to do next? How will His plans unfold? What are His important instructions for us as His people? When King David was near death, he left final instructions for those in leadership and especially for Solomon, his son. It was crucial that they would listen carefully and not forget them. The same was true for the apostles as Jesus' departure drew near. His instructions for them are also instructions for us. But there is a big difference between King David and King Jesus. You see, King David is worshiping Him right now. King Jesus is the object of His worship. King Jesus sent the Spirit for the apostles and now for us, and King Jesus will return. Are you ready to see how the restoration of Israel is going to begin here in the pages of Acts? You know, it's still happening. Jesus is still at work in the world through the Spirit. We are connected with the men and women of these very pages. The Spirit did empower them to be worldwide witnesses for the ascended Christ. And the Spirit is still empowering people like us and churches like ours to be worldwide witnesses for that same King Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are currently executing your plan of redemption, that you sent your son, he lived a perfect life, he went willingly and obediently and even joyfully to the cross. He rose from the dead by the power of the Spirit and he has ascended into heaven and now you and the Son have sent the Spirit to us. Oh, Lord, will you fill us afresh with the Spirit? Will you help us to be witnesses to you boldly and courageously? Will you help us live wholeheartedly for you in his power? In Christ's name we pray. Amen.